Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Julian Bleeker, PhD. Julian is a researcher, designer, and entrepreneur who founded Near Future Laboratory and Omada. He is known for originating the concept of design fiction and has published a book on the subject called The Manual of Design Fiction. We'll likely be spending a fair amount of time on this week's episode talking about that book and his work in general, but I want to welcome Julian to The Deep Dive. How are you? I'm very good, my friend. Very good. And you're on the West Coast, right? That's right. Venice Beach, California. Ah, okay. I've been out to Venice Beach once in my life. I had a pretty good time out there. I got to admit, I'm a little bit of a beach snob, not because I love the beach, but I'm from an island, um, Barbados, which has, to me, the most beautiful beaches in the world. So beaches in the U.S. tend to leave me a little cold, but I did <laughs> enjoy Spending time in Venice Beach. <laughs> so it's, def it's definitely a different kind of beach, <laughs> for sure. It's not always the first one that comes to my mind when I think about beach. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, I would normally say that you're doing better weather-wise than I would be being here in Brooklyn. But with the storms out in California and what I saw in Good Morning America today, I'm not so sure if I could say that. <laughs> you might be in the same kind of web that I'm in. It's it's definitely, it's wet. It's wet. The backyard kind of flooded just like a little bit. You know, it was just like deeper. So it was above the paving stones. So every time it came out to the studio, it was like kind of sloshing through. But uh, I don't know. I guess I guess the uh, this is the weather systems that we're we're getting used to. This is the system we are in, man. And, and, and you know, as a as a state that has experienced a ton of drought, obviously, even though, you know, not making light of the real issues that are that people are having with like tremendous amounts of snow and flooding like you mentioned and maybe the spring we'll see more of that you know these things but one thing begets another thing not making light of it but i'm hoping that in some of this there will be some drought relief because california definitely needs it yeah <laughs> yes yes but let's get into the manual of design fiction and you know i think the best place to start would be, you know, the origination of the term. Like what made you start to think about and work on on the edges of this space and kind of start to bring this to life? That's a real that's a really good question. I and I've been reflecting on it. There was a moment when I'll, I'll give you two quick stories. One one was when I was uh this is in around 2005, 6, 7, 8. I was uh, I was a professor at USC in the film school they call the School of Cinematic Arts. And I developed, uh, there were some colleagues at other universities, mostly in the UC system, who um, we would get together and we would have these kind of reading groups uh, where we would read each other's papers. So this is kind of, you know, the, 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 the academic professional network. And some colleagues at UC uh, Irvine had a paper that was, uh, it was called, I think it was called Re Resistance is, is Fertile. So it was like the opposite of resistance is futile. And they were looking at the relationship between them as uh, as professionals within the, the computing field, where they were doing a lot of work in what was uh, then called ubiquitous computing. 
essentially that's computing that sort of exists in, in you know all around us in objects and devices and our refrigerators and televisions basically the world we live in now and they were wondering about their relationship to the technology that they were developing as adults you know as professionals phd's and professors and so forth and connecting it to the imaginary that they had as as young adults basically as children so what was the world in which they grew up in and what was their image their imaginary of the future and where did it come from and i found that absolutely fascinating because they were pointing to essentially like sci-fi shows and cartoons that they grew up with right so they were looking at what technology looked like to them as you know just sort of adolescents 8 9 10 11 years old or whatever and the kinds of i guess you know media that they were exposed to and how that shaped their vision of what future meant right and their conclusion was basically like well this ubiquitous computing ubicomp this professional discipline or subdiscipline that we're actively involved in it basically came from these shows that we used to watch you know they they made that kind of connection which to me I I found absolutely fascinating and it caused me to reflect on like well where does where did you know where did I come from what did, what is my imaginary of what the future could be and that connection between what they were identifying as a you know as a particular kind of science fiction whether it's like a kids cartoon or you know of star trek or space 1999 or lost in space or whatever the show that was that you watched uh, in your particular uh, you know country and they and they sort of vary so it was interesting to see that, that that these imaginaries vary it wasn't like everyone was growing up with star trek or everyone was growing up with space 1999 or whatever it might be and it it sort of created this relationship between science fiction and what we imagine and how we hold that imagination close to us as we go as we grow up and we become professionals and all of a sudden it's like we're like no 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 my ideas don't come from science fiction they come from you know science fact or they come from the real needs and problems of the world and there there's a comp- more complicated relationship there that this paper was able to unpack and my background is such that basically i grew up with star trek and the apple II computer and that kind of thing and i wanted to create a relationship between that science fiction and my uh, my own practice as an, as an engineer so my background is like electrical engineering computer science mm-hmm. worked at you know companies that do things with that in a in a very pragmatic practical commercial sense and i wanted to be more explicit about that relationship i wanted to be able to say let's do some science fiction and have that science fiction not just be like let's write a story or let's make a film in in the context in which you usually expect science fiction to be articulated or exhibited like if you do science fiction you're a novelist you maybe maybe you're a novelist who is, aspires to do something with hollywood so you're kind of writing screenplays or you're a production designer you know because you like making little objects and devices that might appear in these shows all that kind of stuff I was like well can we do that can we do that kind of work and bring the imagination in a very fertile way as opposed to trying to evacuate it from the work of doing let's say science fact of doing science of doing engineering can you do those things simultaneously explicitly not just kind of like quietly in your head but as part of the practice and i'd come to appreciate and understand design as a as a kind of material making practice sort of very close in a way to the material making practice of engineering right you're making a thing you're taking your imagination you're translating it into something that has has a bit more structure than the vague sense of feeling and that the imagination provides you you know when you look at something and your imagination is really churning on it you might be looking at it and the most you might be able to say is like whoa that's cool 
and yeah. that that doesn't fly as you know if you're if you're sitting in a room with a bunch of engineers trying to figure out how do we make this this thing. Uh, so I wanted to be able to do both those. I wanted to have that whoa cool feeling, as well as being able to represent the ideas in a way that I'll just call it structure, as sees as legible. And so that's that's kind of where this idea of doing design and fiction simultaneously started evolving and developing and becoming a little bit more explicit in this in this practice that you know just started calling design fiction. Absolutely. And you know when I when I started going through the manual, you know, you very early on define the term and there were a couple of like pieces of that definition that I wanted to to pull out a little bit. So, you know, I'll I'll read it in full because I jotted it down in my notes. And it's very much what you said, but minus the story, right? So, you know, design fiction is the practice of creating tangible and evocative prototypes from possible near futures to help discover and represent the consequences of decision-making. And what I wanted to pull out from that is the very first well, not the first line, but this notion of the near future, right? Because I want to, I want to maybe play around with that that notion of one. There are multiple futures, right? There's not just one. It's not really a destination so much. It's sort of something that we're always living in while also looking out, right? So <laughs> beyond getting a little philosophical, there are far futures, right? Kind of the fifty hundred years, but then there's near futures, right? There's next quarter. There's next year. There's six months, you know, there's any number of different things, right? So I'm curious as to why the the near future piece seems to be, I'm using my words, central to the work of design fiction as as you have outlined it in the manual. There, there are a couple ways into that. One way is that I remember when I, when I first started being more explicitly kind of involved in what I guess we might call uh, you know, futures work, you know, sort of whatever that means. And I was uh, taken by, you know, the, these these reports that I, I just found absolutely fascinating. It was mostly coming from the Institute for the Future. They did these, like, really, like, long-range, very, very longitudinal reports. And they were all, like, kind of beautifully bound. You know, there were, like, these books that spent a lot of time looking at very, um, well, I guess what I would call, like, long-term trends. Maybe it was, like, 20 years or maybe... The, they were decadals. Maybe they're like 10-year things. And um, my first instinct was that that's too long for me, uh, mostly because I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm like a practicing engineer, so like I build stuff. And I, I really wanted, I wanted to build stuff that was more explicitly for essentially like now. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a, when it comes, I guess, you know, I didn't know at the time, but I had these like, you know, very much like product design sensibilities built into me. I was like always building stuff in the studio, mostly as a way of like learning some new chipset or or having an idea and just being like, I wonder what it would take to actually build that thing. And yeah, that was part of the impulse that went on to for me to start Amada, you know, as like a product designer. Like I want what does that feel like to actually go full cycle from just a, you know, like a whimper of an idea to actually know you're manufacturing this thing and you're building a brand and community around it. So I had that impulse. And so the idea of of looking out 10 years just seemed a little bit, it seemed like indulgent in the sense of like, that's too easy. You could, you could do the, the work there is basically just to say something and maybe not even be around to see, you know, the consequences of that saying of something and put it in a book. I don't want to diminish the work because oftentimes people would be very, yeah, they, they, they dig very deep and they're kind of like evidence-based and this is where it's going to go and 
all these kinds of things. And and I've learned a lot from that. But I also like I wanted to make things that felt a li- that were a little bit felt a little bit more eminent in the sense of like, oh, we could do this. Actually, you just did. And and have it still feel like it was from some possible future. Like it, it just felt like different enough and just kind of like, oh, I wasn't expecting that when you said you were working on that. This is what and then, then you open things up so that it's not something that someone expects necessarily. And it does a little bit of a magic trick of having them ask questions about it. And I th- and it felt like that that's really what you want to get to. You want to not predict a future so much as provoke a conversation about the kind of futures that we would like to work towards. And so the the longer range stuff uh, that isn't near future, like the futures or like the 20 year thing, just didn't feel very helpful, to be honest. It just felt like, uh, okay, I get the work you're trying to, you know, it, it almost felt like declarative. It wasn't, it was, it was saying, this is the future, as opposed to, is this a future that we want? Is it, is it, is this what we should be working towards? And, uh, I, I found that when you get into those longer, those long range things, first of all, when you introduce time, I find that problematic for the, the purposes of trying to imagine into the futures that we want to inhabit, because then, then you get into, you immediately set up this thing where people maybe react like, oh, well, I better get this right. Or 10 years, is that, you know, what is that? Is that really possible? We're going to have that, uh, you know, with the, with the right technology. And I, and I think that I find that very arbitrary. And I feel that that is that that's more all of a sudden you've introduced this container, this kind of structure that immediately kind of clamps down on the imagination. Uh, because you, and then you get in these things where people say, like, uh, well, you know, what we saw there was a failure of imagination. Um, you think of like the pandemic, for example. It was very easy to imagine, uh, but, but it and it happened. Despite that, it happened to us like in the blink of an eye, from one moment where it's like, ah, eh, you know, this probably I can't I can't imagine a world in which we had kind of global lockdown to like we got a global lockdown. I mean that that was like on a dime. Yeah, but some people imagined it. Some people totally imagined it, and I'm sure there were binders binders of people with like you know with with uh, predictions and like this is going to happen. This is what it's going to look like, and these kinds of things. And we somehow still, you know, kind of caught us. It was not a comfortable thing to imagine. So it was very easy to ignore, I guess, I guess it was to say, just, you know, in that example. I think COVID is useful for, for conversations like this. One, as a, as a real thing, right? So it, it like you said, it, it kind of gives us a, a good space to kind of talk about that reality of, you know, some folks have written about and talked about emerging pandemics in some way, shape or form, right? It's not that they needed to predict COVID per se, but they did predict this kind of potential shock of something, right? And so I'm I'm curious on a more granular note in the possibilities of, of things like this, because when we have a global lockdown like we had during COVID, many things that seemed impossible all of a sudden became very possible, right? In like I think about work from home, right? If you were a person working at at company X in the fall of 21, no, the fall of 19, and you'd went to your boss and said, hey, you know what, boss, I kind of feel like I need a different working relationship and I'm only going to come into the office twice a day, right? Or, or twice a week. Said boss would have said, well, that's cool, but that's not how we operate here <laughs> for X number of reasons. And, and that's, you know, it would be by and large impossible, right? 
someone like myself who has not worked in a office in the greater part of probably 15 years, if not longer, confronts had confronted things like that differently, right? Where quote unquote work from home during COVID was there's no adjustment. Right. I work wherever there's Wi-Fi from here to Istanbul, doesn't matter. And computer shit is a lot of my shit anyway. So I, I use that example to say that often what seems impossible from a futures perspective is really a function of policy, not reality. So I'm curious how that part of it factors into either near or longer term horizon futures when we're kind of thinking about the imagination of something. The relationship between like imposed conditions, the contingency of you know a circumstance like that, alongside of you know one the the relationship one has like maybe with with one's job, it's somehow it's it's related to like the the dreams that or the structure around which you know we're we're sort of taught to operate within. So the you know what what, what we grow the the thing that we're born into is you know n- nowadays you know over the last whatever I don't know. 150 years is this context in which you you have this relationship with uh, with a particular kind of structure called called a job and actually you know from day zero you're taught how to live in that world uh, and you're taught that that is the world to which one aspires and then there's always like the fringe you know around the edge you were always like the you know maybe like you and I and probably a lot of other people were kind of like Okay, I'm going to try to do that. I'm because that because that's what I was taught to believe in and to to aspire to, and at some point it's just gonna it's gonna there's going to be a, this conflict between your own sense of you know being and the the rest of the world's sense of like how you need to be, right? And in that conflict, you're going to have that you know at some point you're going to have that conversation with your boss and be like, look, I mean this is what I want to do, and you're going to feel that it's going to be it's going to be hard thing. You know you're going to be thinking about it for like months finally find the way and the context in which to do it and to have that conversation. And then you're going to, you know, you'll just be in this jujitsu match with, uh, with structure, right? Your own desire and ambition and the dream that you want to exhibit. And maybe and you're trying to find the way to couple your dream of how I want to live and what I think would be a, a way of life and a way of being that, you know, it's probably some level, you're probably like, you know, I just don't want to get to the point where I'm like 50 and just being like, man, I just wasted my life. That's actually not what I wanted to do. And how I wanted to live. So you're trying to find some compromise. You're trying to get structure to just kind of tap out on the mats and be like, okay, 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 you can do that. And then you get a little, you get a bunch of feeling back from that, saying like, okay, well, I'm worth it. Structure says, hey, you're, we value you. And not only do we value to the point where we're, the value exchange network is going to work such that we're going to give you a paycheck every two weeks. The value we're going to throw something else in there. And that other thing we're going to throw in there to, as, a, as a means of value exchange, right? You're giving us good work and we're going to give you something back is we're going to give you that freedom. We're going to say you can work from home twice a week. And you'd be like, okay, cool. That's, that's, you know, that's the world I want to live in. The interesting thing that happens is when you have this just maelstrom of a contingency like you know, global lockdown where you really can't, I mean, with, with some people, a lot of people, you know, Elon tried to say like, no, 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 y'all need to come in. You need to come in. I'm going to fight. I am going to fight this global pandemic on my terms, not on the terms of Anthony Fauci, not on the terms of what most people think is like, you know, good and reasonable hygiene. You guys need to come to work. And so so you have these you have these kind of like big charismatic dreamers who are like, I'm going to I'll fight. I'll fight for the the values and meanings and attributes of of corporate capitalism. And 
I'm just gonna I'm just gonna change the nature of the game. And that is uh, <laughs> that is an errand that often doesn't bode well, right? Which I think lends us to consequences, right? The other the other part of the definition, right? That you know the consequences to decision making. And one of the things that that challenges someone like myself as we think about futures, you know, in always in the plural is I don't know how much consequence work is is happening, right? Like there, it is, I guess, to some, but by and large, it, it feels like the, the adage, and I'm going from a cultural perspective, right, is kind of move quick, break things, you know, you, you know, mentioning someone like Elon Musk, you know, multiple, multiple issues with your work environment, even when it's working, right? Like as a, as a place to work, there, I could cite tons of problematic shit about it, right? So I'm like, I don't know if I'm entrusting you to get this right in that maelstrom when you're not getting it right in just normal times, right? Like in nice still days, you're kind of fucking this shit up, right? And so now in global pandemic, you're not really the voice I'm going to. So putting him aside, what I'm what I'm trying to get at is the consequences piece of these design fictions. Like, how do we put those more in the front of the design rather than the reaction to the design? You know, because that's what it feels like to me. Like we're reacting to shit once the cat's out of the bag rather than thinking about the thing prior to. Maybe that's just my perception, right? But I'm I'm the questioner. So <laughs> Yeah. I don't I don't think that there's a there's an easy solution to it, but I think one of the things that I've learned uh doing doing design fiction is that it offers the opportunity for those consequences to I guess I mean have a voice or a place or or be situated within the design work. And I, I don't necessarily think that design fiction is is the only or maybe even the best, but it is a way in which you can articulate the you know not only not only the hopes and desires of a you know particular team or project or 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 effort or set of questions but also the the fears and concerns and i think that's because design fiction what design fiction is able to do which which is you know it brings a component a very very important component of i guess you know fiction generally but science fiction in particular which is essentially to it's i mean it's a parable of of our current conditions more than anything, it's it's you know telling a story about this. This is the world we live in. We've just moved it to the side a little bit, put it on a different planet, or made it into, you know, a, a gang of folks tramping around space, uh, doing good or doing bad or whatever it might be. These, these are all you know they're just stories for us to reflect on our own conditions. And so, what design fiction is able to do, it's able to, unlike I think a lot of futures work, and in, in, it's able to create a vivid representation of the world as it might appear. In in a, you know in a particular future, let's say you know ChatGPT future. Okay, if ChatGPT becomes hygiene, in other words, it's in, in in everything, and it's about as interesting as talking to your television is today. You know, there was a time when it's like, what do you mean you're talking to your television? Well, why would you? What, you, what does that mean? And now we do it like routinely, and our television overhears us or mistakes that we actually ask it a question by talking back to us, right? So this is we're living in this, you know, what I don't know, ten years ago felt very science fictional. Maybe it felt imminent. Maybe some people were like, that'd be weird. But now we just take it for granted. We go to Best Buy, we get a television, we start talking to it. That even thinking twice. 
So what are the ways in which you can actually... Some, some of us talk to it. <laughs> yeah, some, some, of, some of us talk to it. <laughs> some of us turn all that shit off the minute the TV comes home. And the, the, some of us hope that it actually went off. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so so how, do we, how can you create a, the sense of an experience like that for other, for other kinds of things and then do it and play it, play it out in a way and represent it in all these different ways? And so one of the ways that design fiction is able to do that is to actually essentially behave a bit like an archaeologist. But rather than digging into the past, we actually dig into the future. We find these artifacts, these elements of, of, a, of a possible world that we've kind of imagined in. Like we, we're, we've kind of, you know, as if we, we place these artifacts, we're not sure exactly what they are and what they mean, but it's as if we travel to some future or some adjacent now and just sort of looked around and used our imagination to imagine the things that we might see there. So let's say we pick up a magazine, right? Pick a magazine that came from some future, and in that magazine we kind of flipping through it, and we, you know, we sort of imagine what are the kinds of articles that are going to be about ChatGPT. Let's imagine we picked up the Economist. Well, there can be some business articles. There's a, there might even be some letters to the editor, and those letters to the editor might express one, two, or three, or five different points of view on this world that we now live in. Some people might be like, it's the greatest thing ever. Like my kids' education has been helped imme immeasurably by this. And then you're going to have someone who's going to be like, you know what, I think this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to human society. And here are the reasons. And you represent those reasons that we're all, you know, we could all summon forth whatever side, point of view. If you told, told someone who was a big booster of ChatGPT, just, you know, for the sake of this, like imagine two or three concerns that might exhibit in the world. I'm, I'm sure you can. And you give them the space and the opportunity to do it. And you don't do it in a punitive way. You're not trying to say like, see, I told you this is going to be the worst. You're saying like, let's just, let's just amble about this future. You do a couple classified ads at the back of, you know, the economist always has the, the high end jobs in banking or whatever. What are those jobs? What's the title? What's the role? What, what, what's the name of the company? Right? So what, what has happened to the, the state of the banking industry? Is it Credit Suisse Google? Right? So you can start feeling into what the, what the world might look like and use that as a way not to kind of draw any you know, hard and fast, okay, this is what we need to do, but to give people the space and the opportunity, as happens when you enjoy a really good piece of fiction, to really luxuriate into that world and have conversations about it and start really identifying what is the world that we want to live in? What is the, what is the future we want to create? How habitable do we want it to be? I, I guess... What what's really interesting to me is well, I'm going to take a little bit of an aside before I go into this question because Star Trek came up earlier. Um, it's in the book. I am a Star Trek fan, but I'm also on the record as like I'm not an original Star Trek fan. <laughs> so like, oh well, okay, here we go. <laughs> the Kirk Spock stuff for me. I mean, I'm born in 1972, so there's no secret as to my age. But um, I just never liked it as a kid. Never dug it at all. Watch the movies because, you know, the first movie was like, I think, 80 or maybe 79 or 77. I might have the date wrong, but the first movie was kind of meh. Then Rathacon was dope. And like, like that was my introduction to it. So I'm entering into Star Trek world through like next generation, right? Just an aside. And as you were kind of describing these kind of push-pull of products, it reminds me of like one of the more famous episodes, I, I think is one of the more famous episodes, where it's like after the Borg and Picard goes home and he's dealing with his brother, right? And his brother's like, like me, right? He's like, I don't like synthol, you know, I'm, I, we have a vineyard, like I'm in the fields, right? Like I'm growing 
wine still and we don't have a replicator and picard's like well replicators are great synthol has its value you know and he's like kind of representing like a different future while his brother kind of clings to how they grew up and i i bring that up as an aside because a i know you're a fan of the show it comes up in the book but it it feels like some of our fictions are like that conversation right it's stuff that we feel right? Like I have an iPhone, right? And my TV could talk if I disable it, right? But the culture piece that really is interesting to me is that the TV still has images coming at me, right? Like it's thinner. It's not as decorative because old school TV I had in my house growing up, that shit was a big ass cabinet, right? So we put things on it, right? There's like a dolly. There were like little miniaturettes and all kinds of bullshit. Now a TV is flat, so it's not as decorative, but it's still centered, right? So it's kind of like when you had a chimney back in the day with the fireplace, now we got a TV. The structure of the TV might be different. I might have more choices, right? of shit to watch, but it's still a gathering, right? And so I'm curious about the product piece, products changing, but is the cultural milieu of the thing changing? Picard and his brother might be arguing about synthol versus real, you know, vineyard wine, but the wine is still a social act of gathering humans together around a meal, you know, wharf like prune juice, right? And he walked in to, you know, get it because that was his drink. Yeah. Didn't matter if it came from a replicator or it came from prunes. So do you get what I'm trying to get at, right? Like, is it is the thing bigger than the product and the fiction when it comes to our experience as humans? If, if I'm following you, I feel like there are there are certain kind of ideological setups that um, that, that we've we've come to accept and understand and they're legible to us. So the, you know, it's, it, and it, it's usually like, it's, it's a, I mean, it's, it's like a timeless setup. You're either for it or against it, right? There's no middle ground. And I think that, that there, it's a familiar, it's, it's life is more complex than that. But I think, you know, in the context of, of something like, like a bit of, uh, how, how long was start? Was it like an hour? So it's like 54 minutes of, of uh, of script with commercials, you need, yeah. You need you need to get in there and get out, and so yeah. having that setup between and and it's beautiful, like brother against brother, like yeah. what 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 other timeless story is there? You know, it's like biblical, yeah, and so Cain I think you know being able to, yeah. So articulating <laughs> those kinds of things and putting them in in that particular kind of framework makes for good familiar storytelling. And maybe maybe it's good or maybe it's bad, but it's like familiar. And I think that's just that's just a consequence of uh, the the ideologies that we, we we grow up within that we're that pre-exist us, but are not don't necessarily have to be the one. They're just mm-hmm. they, we're just so used to it is that you can you can set it up. I mean across 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 all kinds of cultural idioms from like from politics to to you know to rationale for uh, you, you know one company trying to gobble up another one. Like th- these are these are all familiar. It's it's you know it's the battle. It's like th- this is the way in which we we kind of exist and understand the world. And I think that the the unfortunate side of that is that you you lose a lot of the nuance and subtlety. In other words, you're either you know for self-driving cars or you're against it. And it's hard to find a way to uh, you know you're for talking to talking to televisions or you're against it. And so it's it's an on-off. And I think that they're I don't know. I guess I guess in the general case. My own sense is that our inability to really articulate other kinds of 
arrangements of you know ideologies or beliefs or ideas is is probably like the major cause of like human suffering in the world <laughs> you know i think your car example is a, is a good one right because one of the things i would would offer is just in the context of of this example right it's not something i've spent an inordinate amount of time on but self-driving cars versus the, the way you know are driving now when i see those kind of conversations i think to myself well i don't know if the future that they're describing or offering me is really that different because I'm still in a car, right? Like I'm still in something that is largely a solo thing getting me from one place to another, right? Like if you had to ask me to start to imagine no cars, right? Or, or very limited use of cars, whether self-driving or not, now I feel like that's more in the space of asking me to do something harder rather than just saying, oh, you know, you have a choice to either press, like stick a key into ignition or now we can press the button or I could do it from my house and kind of pre-warm the car, but it's all still driving, right? Which is why like Uber was never like an amazing thing to me because I'm like, who the fuck cares? It's just a taxi driven by a person. Like you can yeah. use all the fancy language, but it's still a car, you know? So how do we get into not the thing? right? Where it's not, you're not offering me car, you're driving it or someone else is driving it, but you're saying, Hey, you know what, what does your life look like with no car? We don't got these shits no more. <laughs> and we, you, you mentioned that, that that's hard, hard to imagine. And I, and I think it gets down to the core of it. It's like, it's, you know, it's we got to imagine harder. Like the, there's no, you can't just avoid asking those kinds of questions and learning how to imagine into these other possible worlds. I think that's, that's actually a skill it's like it's like learning algebra or learning learning your times tables that we need to encourage and foster more. I feel like the imagination as this really existentially critical capability that that we that we you know we have from birth we're we're taught to use it less and less and less as we get older and older. We're taught to essentially like stop screwing around, stop daydreaming, stop doodling. It's time to pick a path, right? And so in that path is usually not imagine harder that path is usually like well you seem to be good in science maybe you should become an engineer and once you get on those rails you're on those rails like and and you you feel good about it because you're like okay this is a path that it looks like this will lead to a meaningful professional career as an engineer and then you're then you're back in that same problem where you're kind of like you're trying to negotiate with if you held on to it a little bit that imagination that you had when you're seven or eight or nine years old or whatever. And you really want to get back to those feelings that you had when you were able to really express that imagination and whatever you did with you got, for me, when I was a kid, it was like, you know, huge pieces of paper and a pencil and just drawing these crazy worlds with little people in it and ships and airplanes and that kind of stuff. Cause I was like, this, this stuff, it created that cool. Whoa, cool. This is cool. I'm building worlds on this piece of paper. I, I didn't know that language then. But later on, realize like, oh man, that's what I was doing. And if you if you if you evacuate that feeling from you, then you've essentially lost that hook into your imagination, and you're just gonna you know you're gonna you're gonna play by the rules. Which in some consequences, that's great, play by the rules. In some consequences, it's like, why don't you stretch your mind? What else could you possibly? What else could you not just even individually, but even in the context of trying to bring some value to an organization? Let's say you work at Apple, and your job is to like help them figure out you know, future products. If you stay, if you, if you, if you kind of continue to 
to crayon in, within the lines, then you're going to just you're not really doing the job. You're you're meant to sort of like look expansively, and that requires imagination, and it requires you working over and being comfortable, even excited to work over the hump where people are like, "That's really hard. I don't know how we're going to do that." And mm-hmm. just like people like you mean by be like, "Game on. That's what I want to do. I want to do the hard things. I don't want to do the thing where I'm just reading from the script, make it look like this, make sure it uses these colors." Make sure that it's going to be able to sell. Uh, you know, it's make sure it's a hundred million dollar marketplace. Otherwise, we're not interested in it. You might say, like, I don't know what the size of the marketplace is, but I'm feeling this, and you want that space to be able to explore that for the benefit not only of you know you feeling good about your you know it's like the, the, your when your imagination feels like it really ran a really great. 10k you're exhausted and you're exuberant yeah and you want that kind of feeling you don't want just a feeling like all right well i i did it and whatever you want that sense of like expansive exuberance like i'm enthusiastic about this and i'm I'm not even thinking about the fact that uh this this may or may not be a hundred million dollar industry it it may be but something beautiful is going to come out of the process of you know taking a team or taking an organization through that you know like let's go into the future and see what we find yeah. And then actually work on actually, you know, maybe to a certain degree, creating that future. Like, not just speculating about, like, let's make some of the artifacts that came from this world. Like, I mentioned the magazine mm-hmm. uh, archetype, which is which is one of, one of my favorites. Matter of fact, we started a platform called Magazine from the Future, where we essentially take teams and organizations into these possible worlds and do it in such a way that we represent that world as if we found a magazine there, right? And as if we are trying to figure out what that world might look like as represented through a magazine. I, I think what you describe so well when you when you talk about that exuberance is the the joy of something, right? That even despite the fact that these things are are hard and there's labor, you know, there is joy coming out at the at the other side. It's it, it comes down to that th- thing of like the you know the the feeling that if you and, and this so it hurts, right? So if I walked into a room and uh, you know, people are like, okay, we've 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 got the near future laboratory here. They're going to take us into the into the future. They have a you know, particular way of doing it, and we're excited to do it and this kind of stuff. And I told people, it's like, okay, put your running shoes on. We're going to go run 10k. People be like, whoa, that sounds hard. There might be a few people in the room who'd be like, perfect, this is great. You know, yeah, get like, my, we'll get my I'm running a for the day. <laughs> yeah, but some people, you can get some people in the room and be like, first of all, they can be like, why are we doing that? And I guess you know, if if I were to do that, the point of doing it would be like. It's going to be hard to imagine into this world. Don't think that it's going to be easy because we haven't used our imaginations truly yeah. since we since we were like nine years old. And we were first scolded by someone for, for drawing on a wall when we were like, I thought that this was how, you know, we created. Someone's yeah. like, no, 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 but not on the wall. You can do it on a piece of paper. And you're like, oh, that's weird because you guys were celebrating my, my beautiful imagination. Maybe, maybe not this old, when you're like four or five. You guys were like, you were putting that stuff up on the refrigerator. And now you're telling me that because I did it on the wall, it's no good. And so that, that first scolding all of a sudden becomes this thing of like, okay, uh, there's some rules around this. And then the, the rules become harder and harder and harder. And maybe, you know, if you don't have good parenting or not, a, you don't, we don't have our teachers anymore. So there's no one there to encourage you. You just don't know what to do. And even that's a choice, right? It's like, it's like all of a sudden, like no more, no more exercise, right? No more exercise for your imagination. And, that, and then it just sort of atrophies. And so when someone says, imagine, you, you start reaching around for like what the future might be like. And inevitably, you're going to go to someone else's future. You're going to say like, well, Elon said, Sundar said, I read an article about this. It's going to be self-driving cars and be like, why? 
And this is really interesting because when you describe yourself as a you know young person doodling around and building things and trying to you know think create worlds and and do all this kind of stuff, you know there wasn't the language of STEM, right? I'm going to assume that we're roughly in the same demographic here, and I didn't hear those words till like I don't know recently, right? Recently being the last decade to 15 years or so, right? You mentioned like I had an art teacher. Right, like we had art, we had gym, we had recess, we had. I had, I had missed Mr. Mr. Mackey. He was amazing. We had all these things, right? And then you had the bandwidth to kind of chart different stuff, right? And so, one of the things, a term that I that I've written about and I use is this notion of imagination capture, right? That even if when we think we're using our imagination, it is still subject to the prevailing market economies because this is the this is the world we're living in right so to your adage education has to be about a job right so we don't need art necessarily we don't need gym we just need stem right that's the new thing right and there's funding for that from organizations who want to like get us more that's how we're going to be competitive against like china and all this kind of stuff right these are stories right who's going to own the future right so stem stem to me felt like what the space shuttle was when I was a kid, right? The first space shuttle launch was like this big thing. We accomplished this this thing. Kind of running in the background was like, you know, the Russians are trying to do shit in space too. But it's more so about like the ingenuity of this. They would roll the big ass TV that was attached to like a cart, you know? They would like roll it into, into the classroom and we would watch the fucking space shuttle go up, right? And it was something like, we did it. Right. Even as a kid growing up in, in Brooklyn with all the shit that that meant in the 80s, there was a feeling of we did this thing. Now I look at space and I'm just like, oh, it's filled with fucking billionaire privateers, assholes who are like doing this thing for their own ego. My opinion. Right. But my show um, that to me is imagination capture. Right. Because I feel like some kid is not getting the public experience of exploration they're getting a colonial version of exploration, which serves the market, right? We got to, we fucked this shit up. So now we got to go someplace else, or maybe there's minerals there where we can make more phones or whatever it is, right? And I think that's a vastly different thing than Columbia and Challenger. And maybe I was eight, right? So maybe there was some some grumpy dude having that same conversation, like, that's not the NASA of the 60s, right? <laughs> that also hired Nazis, right? So I don't know if there's a question in there, but what I'm trying to get at is like that that notion of imagination capture, right? Like how do we adjust for the reality of that existing, right? That the market tries to get us to the $100 million idea rather than the thing that can be beautiful. Yeah. What you're describing in my mind as I sort of, I, I represent, which which doesn't challenge it. I represent more like you know whose dream are you living in, and and part of the part of the reason why I try to represent it that way. And this this is this is essentially like the you know the quote unquote so what um, at that of design fiction. So something that wasn't that was like sort of partially represented in that book, but I think is more explicitly represented in the next book, which is called the Reader's Guide to the manual of design fiction, which kind of gets to this, like, why does this matter? And it, in, in my mind, it, it's a, it's almost like a, like a timeless sort of question, uh, not question, like response, which is like, uh, to ask ourselves, like, whose dream are we living in? And, and that's a, that's a kind of metaphorical way of saying, like, what ideology do we live within? 
and how can we see outside of it? And and I think that that's a problem that philosophy has been dealing with for for some time. How do we understand our relationship to the various structures that we feel are essential and necessary to our existence within a particular framework? So how do I, you know, we brought up the question of like, you know, just the job, like, and just in a pedestrian sense, like, what is a job? And there's a way in which you can think of it as like, it's some, not just something to do. And it's not just something to enter into the, the prevailing network of value exchange. I do something, you pay me for that. And where does all that go? But understanding that that is a structure that we live within, A, and understanding that it's possible to imagine otherwise. And I think it's the difficulty of imagining otherwise that is uh, that confronts us. So you get organizations that are that are fully invested in that network of value exchange, doing futures work on the future of work. And the future of work, when they when they sort of respond to it, it's like sort of looks like a job to me. <laughs> Maybe with a different kind of desk, the desk goes up and down, or or um, now you can you can do what you did and do it from home, and that's the future. And I, I think that's a, that's consistent with it. You know, an organization that's doing futures work that doesn't want the future to be very much different than it already is, or is responding to and lives within the dream slash ideology of, of a larger system that's actually, you know, you get Google paying McKinsey to tell it about the future of work, and the future of work is going to look like something that sustains the dream of, of Google, maybe at the expense or consequence of, and, and, and McKinsey, so it's like you got the circular <laughs> network. I think the, the response to that in, in general, you know, the, the first, there's, there's a very emotional reaction that you can have where you're kind of like, oh, Okay, we got to do something about this, and you know, and fuck those guys. Like we're gonna, we're just gonna take it to the street. But I think the problem is that no one has represented a more habitable dream of the future, right? So rather than getting, rather than saying like, you know what, let's go to the mats. I'm gonna take you out. It should be saying like, here's a vision of a possible future, and do it in a way that that enrolls people into that dream. Right. So pulls them into that world to where they're like, I, this looks great. How can we build that? Like, let's start working on actually building this other world. And it's not a world that is necessarily confrontational. It's not a world that's that is meant to be like, you know what, I'm going to take I'm going to take Google down. That's what I'm going to do. It might even enroll Google it might say like, hey, you guys have this incredible capability to bring about material change in the world. Like you create systems and processes that could be uh, eminently useful in a kind of world that I'm imagining, what do you, what do you think about this? Like, can we, can we, can we, can we move towards this? Can you help us move towards this at, at the consequence of maybe avoiding the challenges that you will face someday, which is like someday soon, you're going to look like Sears. People say, well, who's Sears? It's like, yeah, exactly. They were yeah. like, they were <laughs> monsters. You know, they would, they, it was, it was the, you know, Montgomery Ward was the organization that could yeah. get you a piano from, 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 from Austria to, some little, some little camp in the West that that they're, you're like, how do you even, how do you do that? And without the internet, how do you do tracking? It's like no, man. And I do want to highlight that you mentioned catalogs a lot in the well, not a lot, but there's a whole thing on catalogs, and catalogs are really interesting to me as well. I I, I did a, a project for an agency around serendipity and deluged them with images of catalogs. Um, and it, it it was germane to what we were doing at the time, but I, I love catalogs. But I want to, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time because I do want to get us out of here on time. But I'm curious about like your last response talking about like that alternative, right? Like, because I agree that I don't have a problem with confrontation, but some things don't have to be confrontation necessarily. And I don't want to suggest that this is a, a binary, right? Meaning that it's, 
there's the one dream to kind of use your language that we're living in versus like one other dream, right? I think these dreams, if I had a visual way of intersecting them, I do think there's one prevailing operating system, right? So again, this is my own editorial, right? I think like our prevailing operating system is capitalism, right? And then everything kind of flows from that. Even in nation states that say they aren't, it is. Um, And so that permeates kind of like our religion or everything right? I'm simplifying for the interest of time and the question. But and but I think within that, there's a lot of other subsets and things that swim around in dreams per se, right? But generally, that's the operating system. So I, I but I do think that, for example, there are other like futures being offered that even if they're not in direct opposition, their very nature creates opposition, to that prevailing system, right? So I I point people very often to abolitionist frameworks, for example. And many folks in this world that we're in, first of all, will say like, I don't even know what that is, right? Which I find amazing, right? So I'll say like, oh, you should check out the the work of like Ruth Wilson Gilmore and, and tons of other people, right? I'm just naming one prevailing thinker, right? But Robert, Robin D.G. Kelly, there's tons, right, of folks who deal in these spaces that are asking to me very hard questions, right, which is, what if there are no police? What, what does our society look like if that's not the case, right? And it's more complex than that, but I'm giving you an example. What, what does prison abolition look like? Like, truly look like? Not just, we should have different sentencing, and we should change, and prison should be better, and no, what if they're none? I think those to me are very dramatic ideas that by their very presence become ideas that the prevailing system fights against. So even if they're not in confrontation, the prevailing system's like, nah, fuck that, right? So it becomes sound bites. It becomes like, oh, you wanted to fund the police? It becomes all this other stuff, right? That don't even allow us to have the imagination conversation that I think would be useful, right? So- I'm, I offer that as like, how do we better truly surface to the extent that we want to some of these, I think, more interesting ideas, right? That to me are really kind of future facing. That's the question, given the long-winded example. <laughs> and then we're going to get into the final two segments of the show. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go back to the, to the thing. So, so A, it, it's hard work. And the hard work is imagining into what those futures look like. And I think it's easier to imagine into those, it's easier to not imagine in those futures and say the prevailing ideology is wrong, um, as opposed to offering a what is exceptionally hard, which is this is what it could look like. And doing that in a, in a vivid, uh, highly acute fashion, not just saying, I want something different or, or, or even you know, bring up policing. It's like, let's, let's defund the police. Um, in in sentiment, I get where that come from. I understand it. I feel it. Uh, I mean, my first, yeah. I, I mean, if it's worth mentioning, so so my my, my godson nephew is light skinned black man. He's six four. He's eighteen years old. Right. He's a basketball player. And my first reaction when you know, d- during during the summer when this was really hitting the fan was for him. I mean, it was just this visceral reaction. Like he's now out hanging out with his friends. And he's one mistaken Snickers bar away from being mistaken for, for a criminal, right? So I understand the visceral reaction to it. What, I, what, I, what, I, what was missing in that case, as is missing with, for example, the, all the people who are working against climate uh, change 
you know, doing the good work of trying to get us to a degree and a half, which sounds like we, we lost that one, is a vision of what the future looks like and, and helping people understand what that world's going to be like and doing it in as compelling a way as, you know, the, the political right is able to represent a vision of their future. Like they do it in such a way that enrolls people into the people like, yes, that's the world that I want, right? And I think that, you know, not to make it into a political thing, but it's like the other side, which you're saying defund the police. Okay, show me what that world is like. Do, do, get, bring me a newspaper from that world and show me what it looks like and do all the hard work of actually creating that vision, creating that dream. And the, the, the more the, our inability to do that kind of work, to create dreams that people want to say like, okay, I want to go there. That's the place I want. What do we need to do? It, it's incredibly hard. And I think it's hard because as, as, as long as, I mean, what was it? I feel it's like the first step to fascism is to like teach people, um, essentially get rid of art. So get rid of imagination, right? To flatten the world in that way. And so I, I think that's the work. And, uh, you know, in particular cases, you can do that. But I think the first thing is to recognize like, okay, well, our imagination doesn't work clearly. Like we're all we're able to do is kick up dust, which, you know, politically speaking, the other side is like, good, let's do this. Let's have a fight. Because that activates, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm, I'm in the middle of this, but that activates the other side, right? Because the other side, it's great, you have, you have a fight, They're just we're just going to get more hopped up. We're not going to come over to your side. You're not going to be able to beat us down to a pulp. There's going to be, there's no, the fight's over, let's, let's have a judgment from, you know, was it a technical knockout? That, it does not happen. There's a, a person that was murdered at Cop City down in Atlanta during the protests very early on. So I know they had more recent, at the time of recording this, they had more recent stuff going on there, but this like maybe a month ago, I think. My timer might be off, but anyway. And they said, like, look, we're not in this to fight. Like fighting is not where we're going to win this battle, right? And I'm totally on the same on the same vein because look, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm not interested in <laughs> fighting with anybody, you know? I always say, look, you come to Brooklyn, then we can have a conversation. But as long as you don't come to Brooklyn, we good, right? Like I have no interest in confrontation in that manner. But I, but I do think like when I, and this is why I'm always in, interested in these future spaces is that, you know, it seems like it's so much easier for folks can, they can imagine the most impossible things, but yet can't imagine what's here and now, right? In, in very simple ways, right? I don't know. I, I, I looked at this report and, and this is not an attack on like the Buy Future Foundation. I mean, they do good work. But they had this whole big long thing about like the future and all this kind of stuff. It's like I didn't see music, I, you know. I didn't see like anything having to do with the art. I was like, so we're just gonna live in a world where it's just nanotech and computers, and we're not gonna do shit else. Like we're not, we're not gonna go to a bar. We're not gonna like hang out. We're not gonna do shit. Right? No concerts. It's just nanotech. You know, some sort of bullshit about viruses and laptops. And, and so, so when I read those things, I just can't really take them all that seriously. Right. Or the other thing I do is if I look at something and I don't see brown faces, I'm like, nah. Right. Like, this don't make no sense to me. Right. Cause if I look around the world and even just in population, it's mostly brown people. Right. And women. And then I look at all this future stuff and I don't see either one. So I'm like, I can't take it seriously. Right. It just it's just an instant default to me because I'm like, if you can't see what's obvious, how can I trust you to tell me what's going to happen? Because you're not listening to the people who are making the things happen. So why would I listen to you? You know, just an addendum to like how I just think about things. Right. Um, 
it's surfacing more voices, surfacing more voices, right? So they can be in the magazines. They can be in the catalog that you talk about, right? Because I think if you looked at it 20 years ago, no one was going to see like Snoop Dogg would be like America's pitch man, right? If I looked at a magazine, his first magazine cover, Vibe 1993, Snoop Dogg was one of the most dangerous human beings in the world. Now this dude is everybody's uncle, right? <laughs> like I can't turn on the TV without seeing Snoop, Shaquille O'Neal, and The Rock, <laughs> right? They're selling me everything. Who would have thought? The dude was up for murder. Who could have predicted it, right? Clearly not most people. <laughs> so we live in funny times. I can't wait to see who's going to be the person in the magazine from in the, of the future, right? Like that's something you got to look at. You got to look at the current felon of today and see if they could turn into the next spokesperson. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the things that it's not a, uh, you know, when we're sort of referring to the, the magazine from the future, which is as I mentioned, this is a new platform that we that we've developed. I think it's one of those things that allows you to uh, allows you in, to imagine into those. And so long as you don't do it as as I'm declaring what the future is, like you're doing it as a way of kind of engaging in and starting the conversation, then you're actually, in my mind, then you're doing like then you're doing the good work and not just uh, doing the work of creating a report that is a self-fulfilling prophecy or a report that is an articulation of already existing dreams of possible futures that is basically, you know, you could draw the line back to all the big charismatic dreamers who, by, by charismatic doesn't necessarily mean that you agree with them, but they just have this incredible ability to fashion worlds and get enroll other people into that. And whatever it is that they're, they're doing to enroll people into it, oftentimes it comes down to it's like, I got a shit ton of money and I'll give you a bunch of it if you help work on this future that I would like to uh, that I that I that I believe in, and it might not be like they might not be kind of megalomaniacs. They might earnestly believe that I think neural implants are a viable way of creating a kind of habitable future that I that I think is you know many other people want, and also many other people will 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 enroll themselves into. And part of that dream is like I'm going to make you smarter. I'm going to make you you know faster, stronger, live longer. All those kind of existing you know crazy. You know, sort of visions of what it is to do the work of, of, you know, what the future should look like. Living forever, being able to coexist in, in each other's minds and, at, you know, infinite degrees and all these kinds of things. But that is someone's dream. And you have to understand that that, that dream pre-exists you. You need to interrogate it to the point where you're like, is that is that what I really want? Is that is that what I'm feeling into? And if I'm not, what can I do? Not Not necessarily to antagonize those dreamers, but to say like, well, hold on. I've got this imagination just like they do. Why, why can't I just start articulating what my vision is? And it might not be like I want to articulate this vi vision by you know breaking off you know huge checks to startup companies. It might be like you know what I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna start talking about it. I'm gonna write about it. I'm gonna I'm gonna make little films about it. I'm gonna talk to other people about it, and I'm gonna ask that question. This this just happens to be my dream, and I and I'm I'm doing it alongside these others, and I know it's not what you've heard since you were born, and no, it's not what you're what you're expecting, but I don't know. I think there's something here. I think there's part of this that is leading into a future that I very much would like to live within. I would like to inhabit that dream, and I think that there are other people who might want to inhabit it as well. I love it. Parable of the Sower, right? Octavia <laughs> Butler, check it out. Um, Learn so. I mean, and this is this is the, this is the connection to. You know, to science fiction in in a lot of meaningful ways, it's like you know Butler, Le Guin, you know, even to a certain my my PhD mentor Donna Haraway, although she never wrote fiction per se, a lot of the work that she did lived within that realm of trying to imagine the world otherwise. Like here is the way in which we can do it, and she was just such a vivid 
kind of translator of both the the critical ideological uh, impulses, but showing us this is how you do it. And this, these are the people who have done it. Read this, read this, read this. This is how they're fashioning entire worlds. And I feel like the you know the the thing the incredible gift that you gave me was the recognition, uh, you know, alongside of all the other you know important kind of philosophers of of, of science and culture, Mark Fisher, um, uh, you know, just on on down the list. To how, okay, so how can we do this? And so I, I'm me being an engineer, I'm less and a designer. I'm like less like okay, let's just write more essays about it. Like let's actually create these worlds. Let's create artifacts as if these worlds that we might be dreaming into exist and use those as ways of having conversations about the kind of worlds that we want to create. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, the, the manual is, it's really awesome. Like, I, I love the, you know, not to use the word design over and over and over again, but the design of it, the the references, the artwork, you know, the examples. It's just, it's just such a, a fun read, and I was really excited to have this conversation. I want to get to the final two segments of the show. The first being off the dome, which is just an opportunity for me to ask some rapid fire questions. I only have one, which is in your mind, and you can't say Star Trek, okay? <laughs> what is your what is your best design fiction world that has been built out there? A favorite, a best, but that's not Star Trek, because I know you're a Star Trek guy. <laughs> so I'm taking that one off the board. So something other than that. I'm going to give you a, a recent one. I'm absolutely fascinated by the the world and, to a certain degree, the story of um, The Last of Us. And uh, the reason why is the, the thing that I'm feeling right now, you, you know, it'd be fascinating to have a conversation and sort of be dissuaded or moved around or nudged as to it. But it, it drew me in because it showed, you know, aside, aside from the, you know, the, the apocalyptic aspect of it, it showed a the, the nuances of a world that where things are still operating at some level. And it might be on the one side, like the Fedra kind of fascist, and on the other side, the, the, the you know, the survivors who creating community, I think like the, the folks in Jackson Hole, it's like, that's kind of interesting, like they found a way. And also the, the, the complexity of the, those relationships, it just had nuance, because there was one moment where Ellie is, she's in the Fedra Academy, and she, she, has, she has a moment with like the principal or the dean or whatever. And the way in which they represent that is such that you get a point of view from that side because because the 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 dean or the provost or the headmaster or whatever it is says we're keeping shit together like without us they would just all go crazy and kill themselves and there's a part of it where you're kind of like okay well that that's what you know like any good fascist would think like unless you have us our authority we um every society will fall apart you need us yeah and the, the, so the 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 point of view that you're put in as the viewer is kind of like is you know at one level you could be like okay, I can see why that exists. I can see, I can feel the impulse for, you know, an organization or the remnants of the government or whatever to form this, you know, this this hybrid kind of Fedra thing. At the same time, well, you're also, you're also recognizing the fascist impulses and undercurrents of it. So I think, you know, the showrunners did a fabulous job of like putting us in a position where it's like, it's not as easy as you might hope. There's not just, you know, you're either for it or against us. You're either a Firefly, or you're, you know, you're Fedra, and so I thought I thought it was just a wonderful example of a kind of um, complex vision of a, of a possible future that, I guess, you know, it's definitely not Star Trek. Because Star Trek is like you, you choose, you basically choose a side, and you got one side to choose when it comes yeah. down to it. <laughs> Although some people did get into being the Klingons, I get that. I enjoyed that show as well. I had a, another thought on it, but I won't bore our listeners with it in the, in this moment. And I and I will. I usually don't answer 
the off the dome, but I will only for the purpose of the fact that there is only one of them this month, um, this this episode. But I've really loved the even though they haven't explored the world that deeply, but more recently, something like John Wick has created this entire world that I find very interesting only because because I know the story of like how he got that movie made, that it wasn't really, it wasn't designed to be as big as it was, right? And so it kind of had this, came out, was okay, but kind of found its life in DVDs and then kind of became a cult classic. And now each one is bigger. And now they've fleshed out like what it really means to be in this world of like global assassins um, with like the hotels. There's a whole bunch of shit that I just really like. And ironically, even though it's completely absurd for a similar reason, Fast and Furious. Like, I don't think if you told anybody when that first Fast and the Furious movie came out that we would have seen 10 of them. And just by box office alone, they've got to be one of the most successful franchises ever. Each one bigger than the last. Completely absurd. (laughs) Completely absurd. But I don't think anybody saw that coming. (laughs) So I find that fascinating. I'm going to move on to the drop. And the drop is an opportunity to share anything at all with our listeners. And I'm going to share uh, anime that I've read the manga, I've watched most of it, but I'm in the moment of a rewatch. And it's Attack on Titan, very well known. It's nearing its end for those who are watchers of the show. And so I decided to go back 100 plus episodes and redo it um, as, as also a manga reader and I'm catching things that I didn't catch the first time around, which is why it's top of mind. So I'm going to recommend if you have an inordinate amount of time, Attack on Titan is my drop <laughs> for for this episode. And so you're up, my friend. What were, what were the parameters around the drop? It can be anything. A drop can be a, a book, a show, music. It's just anything that you feel our listeners um, should be aware of. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it close to home. So so my drop would be uh, the work kit of design fiction, the new edition, which is literally uh, arriving uh, today. But it'll take about a week for it to to appear on Near Future Laboratories website. But this is like my version of the of kettlebells for your imagination. So this is like the the work kit, the thing that you work your imagination out on, and the thing that I feel like. We got some people in the Discord community who do daily design fiction. So every day, they're actually using their imagination to to try to you know feel into a possible future, and they use the work kit as the prompt for that. And then they go through the they go through the work of not just saying what it would be, but actually crafting it and creating it. And oftentimes that'll be in the form of like, you know, a um, an advertisement from the future, or it might be uh, a new product from the future, but it's that daily ritual of every day using your imagination in this kind of active fashion that I think is, uh, it, it, that would that would be my pick for the drop because I think it is absolutely critical and vital that we relearn that capability, that we remind ourselves of what it is and how it feels. You know, it's like going for, going for a run every day, but using your imagination. Yeah. At 10K? Yeah, at 10K. That is awesome. I think that's a that's a great drop. And, and Julian, I really want to thank you for being on the show. Design Fiction was a lot of fun. And I, I love work like yours because I know it's something that I'm going to pull off the shelf and, and use and refer to and reference. Mm. And that's when you really get a rich experience, right? Like we're helping to build these worlds together. So I, w- I want to really thank you for coming on the show and engaging with me and having fun, man. My pleasure. Super fun talking to you. Thank you.
You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.